must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and I am your host, Brandon Pollan, and today I am joined by a very special guest to talk about acute care simulation within DPT education, and specifically a little bit more in-depth about the the program at Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, to discuss this, of course, I am very happy to welcome Dr. Dan Dale, who is a clinical assistant professor and the assistant director of clinical education at Mercer University. Now, first and foremost, this episode on simulation is kind of a intro episode, shall we say, along with discussing Mercer's program, like I kind of said. But in the near future, both Dan and the HET team will also guest host other people that kind of have more different perspectives on, you know, clinical simulation in education to kind of share Um, differing perspectives in this avenue because with simulation, of course, being more talked about and looked at within the past few years, Dan actually brought up the really good idea that maybe we should kind of focus a little bit more and have more discussions on that. So I'm all on board for that. So Dan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for, again, that recommendation, (laughs) that idea, because that was the credit for that was all yours. And you know, I, I understand that I know that a lot of people out there may not know a little bit more about you. So would you mind just kind of going through a little bit more into who you are and kind of how things have gotten to where you are today? Absolutely. Thank you, Brandon. And uh, thanks to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast team for uh, having me on and, and taking this issue uh, on full force. So uh, I'm excited today to kind of share my story. I'm a 2011 graduate uh, of Armstrong Atlantic State University in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, it's now known as Georgia Southern. Uh, and Following graduation, I worked at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia, a model spinal cord rehabilitation center, uh, and worked in long-term acute care there. And one of the things that kind of got me started on this path of, of education and uh, simulation was working in long-term acute care and having students consistently and seeing the fear, the anxiety, and also the length of time onboarding can take in some of these centers where we're dealing with lines, tubes, patients with higher acuity, uh, etc. So I really wanted to look at how can we reduce some of that. So that's a little bit about me from a clinical side. Um, while I was there at Shepherd, I, I did work uh, in wound care prevention, uh, worked a lot on quality initiatives, and, and I'm also a certified lymphedema therapist. Um, but from there, I got certified as an APTA uh, credential clinical instructor, and then moved into some adjunct teaching positions, uh, kind of around the Atlanta area. I did some guest teaching, uh, guest lecturing, and then also got hired on as an adjunct professor at uh, Mercer University teaching health policy, uh, which is another love of mine, another topic uh, altogether. 
but so following that kind of adjunct position, I got hired in 2017 as the uh, clinical assistant professor here at Mercer and assistant director of ClinEd, which again meshes two of my loves of being in the classroom with students, but also seeing them out in clinic and helping mesh some of what we're learning academically into their clinical approaches. Uh, you know, on top of that, I am the chapter president for the Georgia chapter, so have a lot of ties in with, with my fellow Georgia clinicians and, and being out and representing our students and our clinicians. And then uh, I'm the chair of the ACAP Student Leadership Development Group, so really excited about that. And we'll talk a little bit about that research as well and how that kind of ties into this whole uh, process today. Well, I love it, Dan. And thank you so much again for all that you do. I know you've been involved in a lot of other things throughout the profession as well. So I, I really commend you for your level of service. And, you know, before we kind of focus more specifically on, of course, Mercer's program, let's kind of back up a little bit and kind of just go through the basics of what exactly is simulation? You kind of hinted at that in your original introduction here because I recognize that some people might hear simulation and we might have some different interpretations and understandings of what that is. So to start off, let's go through what exactly um, is clinical simulation when we're talking about, you know, healthcare education and what, and what specifically can clinical simulation entail? Excellent. So um, to kind of define this, I really want to use some operational definitions because I do think that's very important and I think that's one of the problems in how we're adopting simulation is people don't necessarily understand uh, what it may entail as you said. So we're going to work from the Society for Simulation and Healthcare or SSH's uh, Healthcare Simulation Dictionary which is available online. It's free to anyone uh, but it really defines all of the key terms involved in simulation. Uh, just a shout out to SSH. First of all, their mission is to serve members by fostering education, professional development and advancement of research and innovation. Uh, but also promoting the profession of healthcare simulation through standards and ethics and championing that healthcare simulation through advocacy, sharing, facilitating. It's a great resource if people are looking to get started. So that's my, my quick shout out. Uh, so the SSH defines simulation as any technique that creates a situation or environment to allow persons to experience a representation of a real event for the purpose of practice, learning, evaluation, testing, or to gain understanding of systems or human actions. So it's an educational technique. It replaces or can amplify any kind of real experience with some guidance that can really evoke feelings of the individual that make it seem real. Um, it can be used again to promote or improve skills of the student. So we can go into it without any kind of grading mechanism. It's just used to help promote the skill or you can use it to validate skills, uh, as we'll talk about in kind of some of the other medical professions. It's used as a validation tool where they can actually go in and say, yes, you can or no, you can't do this skill before it's released to a real life patient where there's safety issues. Um, so that's, that's kind of simulation uh, in a nutshell. And then there is an organization, the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning, or NACSL, I-N-A-C-S-L, released standards. So that's another reference for people that are looking to get started in simulation. They have standards of what a simulation should entail. So what exactly should be part of that simulation activity and would encourage uh, those interested to really look at the Anaxal standards to understand. Well, I appreciate that, Dan. And if anyone's listening at this moment and they kind of want to take a pause and kind of just scroll and look through that, um, just easily scroll down. We have that link provided in the resource there. So feel free to check that out and hit resume when you want to. Um, and Dan, you really did a good job of kind of setting the stage for that. But, you know, of course, as we know with any kind of 
strategy that we're kind of using in education, and frankly, I mean, anything from life for that matter, there's of course going to be some advantages and some disadvantages. So of course, I recognize this can vary on the setting. This can, there can be a lot of factors involved with this. But generally speaking, what are some of the bigger known or most common advantages and disadvantages of using these sort of simulation-based activities in healthcare education and even specifically in physical therapy education? Absolutely. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, so being biased that I am towards simulation, I'm going to start with the disadvantages because I think that list is a little bit shorter. Uh, but when we think of disadvantages, really thinking uh, in conversations I've had and talking with other faculty members both here and in programs that have or don't have simulation, there are some disadvantages that do come to the surface. Uh, the first is the cost. And, and I think that's the biggest thing that people talk about when they think of simulation and what that entails. It's the cost of the technology, of the space, uh, having the availability of those things. Again, cost is a big barrier. Um, programs will need the space, they need the equipment, the technology, they have to have a fund in place to get a program up and running. And in, in my response to that, I would argue that many universities already have some of these costs taken care of. They're just not necessarily in your department. So we'll talk a little bit about how we combine forces uh, with the nursing department. And we've kind of pulled in some other professions to help. But again, there's some, some space you can use that can be revisioned and, and, and some things that you can do to cut down on that cost. But I think partnerships is one of the biggest areas uh, that we could do a better, better job on. Another disadvantage um, that I've had in conversations that have come up uh, is when people think of simulation and they think of physical therapy, they see them on two different fronts. People think of simulation as being kind of more us in the machines. Uh, it was really kind of fun at ELC 2018, we had a debate and that was one of the, the talking points is how PT is that human interaction and it can't be us talking to a mannequin that doesn't talk back. Uh, and I would argue, actually, some of the high-fidelity mannequins do talk back and can do those things and have that human element. But when I think of that human connection, I, I don't disagree in the fact that clinical education and that human connection is so important. I'm not saying that simulation will replace that. But I think a high-quality simulation program can not only achieve the same outcomes, but can ensure that all students can have the same experience. And that gets in a little bit to the advantages. Um, when we talk about kind of advantages in any simulation that we set up, students can have the same psychosocial factors that we can encounter every day in a hospital setting. If I run a really high quality simulation, everybody gets that same exposure to scenarios that may happen that really encompass that human connection. Uh, so I would argue again, as a disadvantage, it just means we have to be better in how we kind of create our simulations. In regards to kind of advantage, uh, one final disadvantage that I kind of see is there are some aspects of simulation that are limited because they don't match up exactly with physical therapy intervention. So, you know, one of the things I hear talking all the time is, okay, in simulation, how do you simulate gait training with a mannequin? And obviously the answer is we can't right now. Uh, but with that, I can still use standardized patients, which is part of a simulation program where I can really, again, have them act out a clinical scenario just as well. And again, I'm ensuring every student gets the same experience. So those are some of the disadvantages and some of my responses to them. Uh, in regards to advantages, I think the list is excessive. <laughs> I love where we're at. So I'll limit it to some of the ones I see that are most important. First, I see simulation providing an opportunity for students to learn and gain and improve skills in a safe, non-threatening, experiential environment. It allows the students to make decisions independently, think critically, 
build their clinical reasoning, build teamwork, and build communication skills without ever once sacrificing patient safety. So again, it encourages the students to make mistakes and do things. You know, when I go out as a, a clinical educator and I'm talking with CIs in acute care, intensive care, we all discuss that ability that we innately have of allowing a student to fly on their own in acute care, intensive care. When do you make that decision when the student appears safe? And that can be tough. And it's tough on a CI, a clinical instructor, to let the student go on your license to say, okay, I think you've got this. Let's see how you do. But with simulation, again, I can provide every student the opportunity to fly independently. And the chance to truly evaluate their skills without needing assistance, without needing guidance, without me having to step in to stop an adverse event from happening. The student can learn, they can make mistakes, they will learn from those mistakes and hopefully never make them again, uh, but they're allowed to see the consequences of their action, which we really can't do in true clinical education. I can't let the student make a mistake that will harm the patient, but if the student makes it in simulation, they can see the outcome and they'll remember that outcome. Um, again, a student's always gonna be stopped short in a clinical rotation of making that mistake, but in simulation, I allow it to happen. Um, another advantage that I see, and one thing that we're currently trying to research, is we recognize, especially in physical therapy education, but this is present in nursing education as well, we're losing some of our acute care sites. Uh, so we have mergers and acquisitions where major hospital systems are coming together. We're having a shortage in the availability of clinical instructors in the acute care settings. And part of that reason is because productivity demands have encouraged us to, to really be mindful of these things. And our students are coming into acute care settings and requiring a longer time to onboard, to get ready for patient care and to be independent in those settings. I see simulation as almost like a pre-onboarding, that we can get students' hands-on experience to get them more comfortable, to get them to be safer in these environments prior to them actually going out. And I think that's on our educational programs to really make sure that we have those opportunities for students to help our clinical partners in the onboarding and the productivity demands. Um, finally, and again, I'm, I'm going on on all the advantages, but I think one of the biggest ones is this engages our students as learners as they are now. I think one of the things that people talk about is, is sometimes as faculty, we're afraid to embrace technology. And we know that our learners coming up now, the, the age group, the generational differences, really embrace that technology and want it you know gone are the days where where it should just be powerpoint lectures it never really should have just been powerpoint lectures but we're beyond that now and, and allowing our students to engage in a technologically savvy environment where they can see real life simulation you know feel see listen to things that are going on that are going to happen in real world that's a way that we can embrace that technology and meet them as learners where they are um, again you know, I can't teach acute care. I can't teach intensive care on a PowerPoint. I have to have something where they can see, they can feel, they can hear and manage the stressors that come with that environment. And, and simulation gives me that chance to teach in that environment the way they need to be met. Yeah, Dan, I think you did a really good job of kind of breaking down, you know, a lot of those advantages, but also disadvantages. And it's interesting because, you know, your points that you just made actually were very similar into the, I went to a presentation at ELC 2018 hearing UAB, of course, talk about their program. And they talked, of course, about, you know, their number of student faculty university barriers to implementing simulation and a lot of them parallel kind of what you had just mentioned there. And I like your response that you said about how usually a university will have something already to some degree set up. So there doesn't have to be 
um, as much front work, shall you say, from the PT program side. But apart from, of course, you know, the big barriers that you had mentioned being cost, space, you know, making sure that that is taken care of as well in time. Let's touch base on some of the other barriers or that you kind of have experienced or heard from other programs that incorporate simulations with not only just that, but other things with kind of getting the program off the ground. Absolutely. So, you know, luckily here at Mercer, uh, getting the program off the ground really just encompassed us partnering with nursing who was already doing uh, simulation training and simulation programs. And then we added from that. But some of the barriers in getting the program off the ground, I think the first one is time. Being someone that was new to simulation education when I started, it's very different than writing a good case for a class to go through. And I think that was part of my misconception is, oh, if I write a really good case, this will work as simulation. I'll just throw some lines, some tubes, something at it. Uh, And it's very different than that. Going back to the Anaxal standards, it's really recognizing in in a good quality simulation, you're really looking at more time in pre-briefing and debriefing with the students than you are in the actual simulation. Uh, The other thing is writing those really clear objectives for the simulation and making sure that you're not trying to do too much. Uh, It's easy to get carried away when you have the technology and you have the exciting things that are happening to really kind of let the objectives get away from you. So I learned really quickly, too, that in setting up a good simulation program, writing really clear objectives and knowing what you're aiming for is big. Um, One of the biggest barriers we always have is scheduling the use of facilities. So for those universities that have large simulation centers, usually they have staff who are devoted to either setting up the simulation lab or scheduling the simulation lab and making sure that people understand how that works. Um, Luckily here, we're still small enough that really PT, nursing, and our physician assistant program are really the only ones kind of using our simulation space right now. Uh, But I recognize in larger universities, there can be upwards of 10 to 12 professions coming in and out of a simulation lab and utilizing that space. So you really have to be careful about scheduling time, Uh, and making sure that it works within your curriculum, that it actually is scheduled at a time that works for the simulation center, but also scheduled at a time that works for the content you're delivering within. Um, Speaking to staff, I think that's a huge part, is making sure staff-wise that's accounted for, and in any budget you're thinking, you know, it would be tough to put that on a faculty member to teach and also direct or set up the simulation lab, so having some assistance in there is is really important. Uh, And then again, there's still some apprehension when we talk about kind of barriers to set up. I think when we got started, I had some faculty members that were, they weren't averse to it, but they were a little apprehensive of if they would be involved in simulation, would they have to learn the technology? What would be their role? And so just being really clear up front of who's going to be in charge of the technological piece and who can still do the teaching and and everything else, I think is, is one of those things to really clear up before you get started. Yeah, and Dan, I want to dive off kind of one little small little tangent on there because I want to go back to that point that you brought up um, a little bit in the past about, you know, of course, universities having something kind of already set up. So let's say, for example, the program is there and they're thinking about it and they're kind of like, oh, gosh, I have to start from scratch. What are some of those like lesser known avenues or things that the university specifically has already done headway on? And how, how do you recommend that they kind of navigate that avenue of it? Because I recognize a lot of people might be in that situation. So there are actually, um, and I did a little bit of research into this because it wasn't, again, it wasn't something we needed to do here at Mercer, but I started to think about it and look into it. And I don't have the resource offhand, but I can absolutely provide it and get it to you guys and we can link it and everything. But there are some resources that have already been created, some books and some online resources about how to start a simulation facility. 
um, everything from how to plan for the cost, what sort of things you need to think about creating a three to five year budget of not only buying the technology up front, but also maintenance to the technology as it wears and ages over time, uh, as well as the space, you know, whether you're going to use uh, a massive lab space that's open that you can use for different things, or are you going to have separate patient rooms? Are you going to have audiovisual capabilities? Are you going to be able to record? All of those things come into play. And again, those are part of some of those resources uh, that I can help provide that will give a little bit more grounding to them. Well, perfect. And, and, you know, of course, we'd kind of gone through, of course, with a lot of the, you know, strengths beforehand, but of course, one of the buzzwords that we have to always consider with any kind of implementation or performance of anything is, of course, evidence. So let's dive in a little bit more specifically when it comes to simulation training about kind of what do we know versus kind of what do we not know um, regarding kind of simulation and healthcare education. Um, so I think to start with what we know, I think we need to highlight one of the largest studies that's been done in healthcare. Um, to kind of give you what we know in, in PT simulation, we're learning. There's some research that's been coming out. It's been a hot topic over the last couple of years, but I don't think we've, we've met that threshold of what we really want to show those outcomes. But let's go to the nursing literature first. Uh, so a study that was done in nursing literature, it was from the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, NCSBN. They did a landmark national multi-site longitudinal study of simulation in a pre-licensure nursing program. And they went throughout the country. Uh, they had uh, over 650 students and they did three phases to this research. The first was kind of a, a survey sent to programs talking about what kind of equipment do you use in simulation? What courses is simulation used in? What's the faculty training and development? And how much clinical hours, how many clinical hours are you replacing with, with high quality simulation? They got responses from over a thousand programs representing all 50 states. So really, really diverse set of data. The second phase was they looked at uh, a collection of nursing programs, BSN programs, uh, as well as advanced degree nursing programs. And they randomized nursing students to receive varying amounts of simulation in place of clinical hours. Uh, so they had three groups. Uh, one group had either all clinical education or only up to like 10% was replaced with simulation. One group had 25% of their clinical education hours replaced with simulation, and one group had 50%. So all the way up to 50% took out those clinical hours, replaced them with, with simulation. And then they assessed their nursing knowledge, clinical competency through tests, through practical exams. They assessed the student's perception of their learning needs. And then they also tested their NCLEX pass rates, their licensure exam pass rates. Uh, and then the final phase, the third phase that they did in the study was they actually looked into some stuff post-graduation and how these nursing students were doing. So after graduation, they were followed into clinical practice for up to six months. Uh, they were examined in how well the new nurses felt prepared for practice. They also um, examined the clinical knowledge, the technical skills, the critical thinking and communication, and they asked their managers to assess their professionalism and their management of responsibilities. And the results of this study have been astounding and have really guided some of this simulation research. So in the results of the study, the NCSBN found that up to 50% of clinical time in undergraduate nursing programs could be replaced with high quality simulation. And they found no statistically significant difference between the three groups. So looking at that, in of course, we're relating it to undergraduate nursing programs. They were saying 
this is okay. We can use this. And so a lot of our nursing programs are actually utilizing this resource and, and adding simulation in because they have some, some research from a really high-powered study to back that up. Uh, as I said, in physical therapy, we haven't really gone that route yet that I'm aware of and that we're studying that replacement. I will say that I, I'm actually involved in a study that's going to look at replacing simulation in an integrated clinical experience. So one of our, we have a one-week integrated clinical experience that happens throughout a semester, and we're going to look at replacing one of those days of that one week, so eight of the 40 hours or 20%, uh, in an integrated clinical experience and see if it makes any difference on the student's perception and their confidence as well as kind of readiness related to some of the acute care entry-level guidelines from the academy of acute care uh, but that's kind of the big study from nursing there is a lot of research out of um, the, the medical world uh, from our physicians as well the one difference in looking at simulation in some of those areas versus physical therapy is there is a lot of task-specific training that happens in nursing education or physician education where their simulation is going to be, can you administer a line, a tube, can you perform a surgery on a simulation? Whereas with PT, it tends to be a little bit more than just skill-based. We tend to do a little bit more in the actual standardized patient realm, uh, going through a full evaluation process and modifying as needed. Perfect, Dan. And, you know, I'm going to ask you one follow-up on that, but just because, you know, we'll be hearing about, of course, that landmark study with nursing and some of the other stuff as well. You know, clearly, if those results are as big as they are, are there, were there any other confounding variables that they thought could have also contributed or any other big limitations regarding kind of that big study? Uh, not that I'm aware of from the report of the study. Um, I know that they're looking into Again, there is some variability because it was so large in, in how it was delivered. There's obviously variability in how simulation was delivered. They didn't standardize what had to be done via simulation. They didn't standardize, you know, the, the, the hours obviously were standardized, but not the content. Uh, and so that was one thing they're looking at because there obviously could be a big discrepancy in what skills a student's exposed to in simulation versus in clinical education. There's also always, and this is one of the difficulties in research in clinical education is there's the variability of the clinical site. Um, I can't standardize a clinical site or a clinical instructor to say what they have to expose students to. So there's always that variability that we have to account for and that they're going to have different experiences as a student based on where they are, who they're paired with, and what their education level is. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, Dan. And I recognize, of course, that, you know, there's still a lot that we don't know in PT specifically when it comes to this. Like you said, there's some research that you guys are doing. And then, of course, I know we're going to probably need a bit more to make any kind of big leaps and bounds when it comes to this. But, you know, as you see things now, I'm going to ask you to kind of put your futuristic thinking cap on for a second here. And I want you to think, do you think that simulation training will eventually be widely adopted in DPT education? I think so. Uh, and I think for a couple of different reasons. Again, we're, we're bridging the gap as we start to work on more partnerships. We're, we're knocking out that cost disadvantage. Uh, the more that universities are doing interprofessional education, the more that we're working together, the more we realize the benefit of uh, all of us working together and kind of cutting into that cost to, to do this. I also think, and, and this is my own personal thought, but when we talk about simulation, I talked already about it being that risk-free environment where students can really practice and expand their skills. And, and as we continue to look at two major trends that are happening in healthcare, the first being what we talked about already, the, the productivity demand that I've, I feel a burden as an academician. I've got to get a student ready faster to implement themselves into these settings, especially acute care, intensive care. 
On the other side, one of the other major healthcare issues that we're dealing with is some of our mental health grit anxiety issues in, in our youth population today that continues to grow. I see simulation as a chance for us to really address some of those mental health issues by allowing students, again, that opportunity to practice in a risk-free environment. Yes, simulation can be used to assess and to validate, to say you can or you can't do this. But I can also use simulation to allow a student into an environment that if they were just placed into clinically, they may not succeed. But if I can do it in a simulation environment and I can help build their skill, grow their skill, I can make them more comfortable. I can reduce some of the anxiety. I can reduce some of the stress of being in those environments and I can help a student become more comfortable in that area and be more successful. So I, I see that kind of meshing both areas and that's actually another area of uh, research that we've been doing in our interprofessional education that we do a simulation with nursing and we looked at how did students' anxiety actually decrease from being in an ICU IPE with nursing using simulation and high fidelity mannequins and, and all of those situations. So, and it's astounding we're seeing that we're actually decreasing student anxiety in a small pilot research study uh, through simulation. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly interesting to kind of see what that's finding. And I'll admit, personally, we did use a, in my education, we did use one set of acute care simulation training. And I'll be honest, that certainly seemed to strike the failure lessons more than uh, reading about it in a book. And because, you know, you, you don't always get that experience even in a live clinical setting with patients either. So I think, it, it, you know, there's certainly, I can see there are some pros to that for sure. Again, I don't know what the full answer is, but I think it's at least like you had kind of said, an avenue to continue to explore and kind of see what we can fine tune with that. So I think that's a really good point, Dan. And you have mentioned, of course, before that there are some differences, of course, between, you know, PT and other health professions when it comes to how they use simulation. You mentioned, of course, that nursing and medicine tends to do a lot of task-specific training, um, compared, which is a little bit different than what PT can normally entail. But, you know, of course, you mentioned in the beginning about, you know, how simulation, the definition of that, apart from what you've already said, are, are there any other different variations that other healthcare providers use simulations for that are maybe a little bit more or less known, just to kind of get an overview of maybe some of the different avenues that simulation can also entail that are just not common? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think what we spoke to a little bit earlier about task-specific training, um, for those familiar with simulation, you know that there are things called task trainers, um, which is really not the whole mannequin. So sometimes it's an arm or a leg or whatever you're actually doing a procedure on. So for nursing, they use task trainers for IV placement. And so they'll have a row of arms set up and they're just inserting an IV into an arm. Potentially, PT could use that, I guess, in training in regards to maybe dry needling. It, it's a little far stretch for me, because uh, again, there's so many variables that go into that training, but PT doesn't necessarily do a lot of uh, task-specific training. Now, I do use our mannequins a little bit for things like taking vitals, uh, for taking blood pressure, for assessing heart and lung sounds. We'll use the high-fidelity mannequins and do a specific just task training of, here's what ronchi sound like. Here's what it's like to take blood pressure on someone with a weak uh, pulse. You know, like this, these are the things that we can specifically train. But I think one of the differences is that, again, going back to PT, we don't do a lot of stuff with static mannequins. Um, we use them for those task-specific training things. And I do use them if there's any adverse risk, if I need to attach a lot of lines and tubes. And obviously, I can use a mannequin. It's, it's a whole lot easier uh, than trying to tape a bunch of lines and tubes on and, and ruining the fidelity of the environment by putting it on a standardized patient. Um, 
that's that's kind of the main difference for me. But again, I think there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. I will say too, one of the things that our nursing program does, and we're trying to implement it a little bit more, uh, they really use simulation to look at the psychosocial factors uh, in in our care and our trainings. For example, one of the simulations that our nursing program does that I'm trying to get our PT program to actually join them for is they perform, uh, they have someone who goes into cardiac arrest and they have to do a code uh, and work to resuscitate the patient. And it's in an effort to give them that anxiety producing moment over and over so that it gets more comfortable and they create muscle memory. Well, in one of the code scenarios, the patient has already expired before nursing comes into the room. So they perform CPR, they try and do everything, but the patient has expired. Nursing then uses that moment to go into postmortem care. So they go through the process as a nurse of taking care of somebody after they've passed. And that means talking to the family. That means talking to the physician. That means preparing the body postmortem. And it's really, it was an amazing experience for me. I got to observe our nursing students go through this. And it, talk about one of the most somber learning experiences that people will take with them. The room is quiet. There's nobody talking. Um, it evokes some emotion out of students, especially if they've had experience with someone, you know, passing. But we have our school of theology there to also talk with the students about death and dying and talk about how do you have these conversations with families? How do you express, you know, your, your care for the patient, your care for the family without crossing, you know, boundaries, religious boundaries or other barriers? So again, I see our ability to actually handle some of our psychosocial concerns and how we talk to our patients and how we care for them and their families as a way that we can utilize simulation as well. Because again, I can't guarantee that a student will have that experience. When they go out in clinical education, they may see a patient uh, pass away. They may have to deal with a difficult family, but I can't guarantee those things. But in simulation, I can guarantee that everyone has that experience and we can debrief on their thoughts, their feelings, and potential best ways to manage some of those situations. So I see that growing in healthcare a lot. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good point, Dan. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.